cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I uh, Bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, June 27th, 2011. Oh, man, I'm glad to be back. I was out of town. I was actually in California for my daughter's wedding. I was not in studio the whole week last week. Drove to California, drove back. I still don't even know which way is up. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, your weary and tired servant in Jesus Christ. I've had to come home and uh, and go back to work in order to get the appropriate amount of rest necessary to function in life. And like I was saying, I, I was in uh, California. My uh, My daughter, Christina, got married last week. And uh, and uh, she's no longer a Roseboro. She's uh, something different. <laughs> she's a Saypaw. Anyway, uh, so my daughter is, uh, she's married. I've got two of the kids out of the house now. Only one left to go. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, nice. oh, man. So getting into the studio today to try to figure out which way is up, to kind of get a compass bearing and stuff like that, was difficult because I'm I'm slogging through a, uh, a kind of a mental fog that I'm I'm trying to uh, uh, overcome at the moment, and it has to do with the fact that uh, I, I, on the way to California, I got there in less than uh, less than 48 hours. I I, I did the trip uh, with only one sleeping episode, and uh, and you know, and so. Left really early on a on a Sunday morning. Got in late on Monday night, and uh, whew, that's uh, <laughs> let's just say that's not the smartest way to do travel. But uh, coming back wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, much better. No, not much better at all. Because uh, what we did is uh, we uh, got in the into the Pirate Christian Radio Mobile, and uh, we drove back, and we did it in two and a half days. And uh, at the end of it. I just cross-eyed, smell bad, uh, you know, things like that. So anyway, I'm excited about the fact that I've got a full week uh, of in-studio uh, broadcasting, and uh, I'll be out of uh, out of pocket for the first couple of days and next week. We've got the, uh, the three-day holiday as a result of the 4th of July here in the United States, 
And uh, I will probably be out of studio Tuesday and maybe back Wednesday. Depends on uh, my. Uh, uh, it just depends on when I get back. But anyway, uh, yeah, I've got a conference that I'm speaking at uh, for the Fourth of July. So anyway, uh, yeah. So getting back in the studio today, it's like trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? Yeah, you, know, you get back into the uh, the pirate Christian radio, uh, the, our secret cave, so to speak, uh, the place from where uh, you know we we organize our our daily assaults on heresy and things like that, and uh, and <laughs> going through the stack, going. How am I going to get through all of this, and uh, and you know, and then trying to make the the decision based upon how I'm feeling? All right, what stories am I prepared to tackle today? Which ones do I need to do a little more research on? Uh, and uh, and you know, and and then trying to come up with a theme for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith was a little bit tricky today too. And so yeah, and, and one of the things I tell everybody, and, and it's absolutely true, is that each edition of Fighting for the Faith there is a theme. There is there is a, a particular doctrinal or theological category that I'm working on, um, a, a particular apologetic uh, argument that I want to, you know, to teach and reinforce. And so each edition of Fighting for the Faith, there's actually some structure to this, and I don't necessarily uh, discuss the structure, but, uh, you know, so coming up with today's structure was, uh, well, just a little bit more than tricky. But anyway, so I, I'm back in the saddle. We've got a full week ahead of uh, of uh, Fighting for the Faith. I'm excited uh, July is going to be uh, kind of a tricky month because uh, I'm, I'm speaking at one, two, three conferences. I'm speaking at three conferences in the month of July, so it's uh, it's going to be all kinds of interesting. And uh, I'm trying to um, troubleshoot uh, a, a a technical problem, and that is is that when I'm on the road, uh, you know, I actually manage the station remotely. I, I have a laptop that I use. I connect to. I get on a high speed internet connection. And I'm able to remotely control the uh, pirate Christian radio streamer, and and you know, and and do things like that. And uh, what I noticed is is that uh, one of the production computers is just wickedly slow when I'm trying to manage it over the, over the network. And it has to do with a, it has to do with a, a trick regarding Apple remote access and things like that. And uh, and so uh, somebody pointed out to me that the uh, the uh, the firewall that we put in place. Uh, during uh, during our December episode, when uh, when we got hacked by the uh, homosexual rights activists, and uh, you know they took down our our, our our station, literally took it down for a day and a half. Anyway, um, when we put the new firewall in place, I, one of the things features I hadn't even really paid attention to was the fact that it actually has something called VPN, virtual private network, and so. I'm trying to troubleshoot how to get the virtual private network to work correctly because I think that'll actually speed up how I do anyway. Have I lost half of you all because I'm talking in nerd talk? And, you know, it's, it's frightening to, to think about the fact that I can actually um, slip into nerd talk so easily. Anyway, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, Ergen Kaner, uh Ergen Kainer has uh, has emerged uh, now. If you remember, we 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 talked about him a little bit during the uh, the controversy uh, that that well the controversy there at Liberty uh, the, uh, Liberty Theological Seminary in uh, Virginia uh, because it became clear that um, well Ergen Kainer's story just wasn't exactly uh, making any sense uh, regarding the fact that he was a jihadist trained by jihadis. Uh, and, 
and things like that. And, of course, uh, James White and Alpha and Omega Ministries has done a fantastic job of, uh, you know, basically punching holes in Ergen Kaner's story. And, uh, well, he disappeared for a while. Well, uh, you know, uh, my friend Brett Shipp, uh, who is uh, one of the, um, the uh, how do I put it, investigative reporters down there at WFAA in uh, in Texas, uh, he actually um, has done a story on Ergen Kaner, and because Ergen Kaner, well, he's emerged. So we're gonna, we're going to do an Ergen Kaner update, and uh, and you know just kind of you know relive uh, some of the past glory of Ergen Kaner, and uh, and and then I've got a Third Eagle of the Apocalypse update. It's absolutely true. It's been a while since I've been able to do a Third Eagle of the Apocalypse update. And uh, so we're going to be uh, listening into the latest of uh, uh, video that uh, well the audio from the video posted by um uh, William Tapley the third eagle of the apocalypse who by the way I don't know if you uh, uh if you follow um uh, you know the is it CNN uh, I forget the name of the anyway he, the, 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 I I think I played the uh, the story there where he he made the ridiculous he didn't make it once. It, William Tapley actually made the ridiculous three times. Absolutely. Three times. And so, I mean, uh, you know, uh, William Tapley, I mean, talk about uh, exposure here. He's, you know, he's been not, he's, well, experienced national exposure not once and not twice, but three times now. And, uh, and so, uh, anyway, you know, we're going to be listening to, the first post ridiculous thir- third appearance on the ridiculous uh, video of uh, of William Tapley's uh, the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and um, and then uh, let's see here I'm, I'm trying to uh, decide where I want to go from there uh, it, 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 on the heels of the uh, of the William Tapley piece uh, the folks there at Family Radio have posted up a, um, a an explanation. Uh, of what happened on May 21st. And I'm going to read this after playing the uh, William Tapley update. The reason being is because I'm absolutely convinced that the folks over there at Family Radio have been to the William Tapley School of Hermeneutics. And you'll see what I'm saying when you, uh, when you, uh, well, when you hear this. And so, you know, the folks at Family Radio have, you know, issued an official statement as to what happened on May 25th, uh, 21st. That was the day then when uh, the rapture was supposed to take place, and, well, it didn't. And, and now, we're, of course, we're waiting for October uh, 21st to uh, to roll on through the calendar and, because, I mean, that's the day that um, uh, Harold Camping has said is, is going to be the end of the world. And, and uh, word from the inside, for, uh, you know, words that are leaking out from the family radio uh, camp is that Harold Camping is not doing so good. Uh, uh, health-wise, in fact, uh, he's, you know, he suffered a stroke, and uh, and uh, so he's been taken off the air, and uh, he's he's been moved to a skilled nursing facility, and so uh, not sure if that uh, if that bodes well for him, whether that means they're they're working uh, to help him recover or if they're helping to keep him comfortable as he's uh, yeah, heading towards uh, well his. His last day on Earth. Yeah, but see, that's the thing, is that you know, 
I don't know what the big deal is about the end of the world. I I just don't get it, okay? Because uh, here's the deal. It's going to show up. Jesus is going to someday, boom, he's going to be right there. It's going to be like in the days of Noah. There's going to be people eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It's going to be life as usual, and all of a sudden they look up and, whoa, what's that? And wouldn't you know what? It's Jesus Christ returning in glory to judge both the living and the dead. I don't know when it's going to be. I you don't know when it's going to be. It, I mean, it could be tomorrow. I'm, I'm kind of hoping it is. But uh, it, it, but here's the deal. Uh, last time I checked, uh, human life is, well, the Bible describes it as uh, as a breath, um, as something that's real, really, really, really transitive and, like, um, uh, like brief. And so, listen, uh, you personally have a uh, have a last day here on this earth if jesus doesn't return in your lifetime i can't say he's going to or he's not going to i just i don't think it matters um but uh, here here's the deal if he doesn't return in your lifetime you have a personal day with death you you do i have a day with it coming up you have a day coming up i don't know when i'm going to die you don't know when you're going to die and uh, and we don't know when jesus is going to return but the point of the matter is is that uh, even if jesus decides to tarry for another couple of thousand years and that could potentially be the case um uh, you aren't going to make it that long um it's 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 absolutely true in fact i can guarantee with 100% certainty that none of you listening to uh, this edition of Fighting for the Faith uh, in the year in which it was originally broadcast, that would be uh, 2011, uh, none of you listening to this edition of Fighting for the Faith um, in, in the year in which it was originally broadcast will be physically alive in 2000 years. Now I understand that there are some major uh, you know medical uh, technological improvements that uh, medical technology is growing by leaps and bounds. That being the case, um uh, the last time I checked uh the best cosmetic surgery still doesn't keep people from dying. And I mean it, was it this year or, or or late last year that we lost Jack LaLanne? I I remember Jack LaLanne. I mean he was the poster boy for health and fitness when I was growing up. And uh, and you know, of course he he made it pretty far, but um, well he died too. Um, and so here's the deal: each and every one of us has a date with death, and that's your personal last day. And um, some of you um, listening to this program may may have the uh, privilege of kind of knowing ahead of time as to how much time you have left on the planet. Maybe be it via uh, a diagnosis from your doctor saying that you have cancer or something like that, and you've only got six months to live. I mean, it could, it could happen. Uh, but uh, the point is, is that who cares? I mean, who cares when Judgment Day is? I don't. I, I, I don't understand the fascination with it. I mean, I've got a personal date with death coming up, and uh, don't know when that day is either. And but I guarantee you it'll be within the next fifty years. I maybe forty. It could be within the next thirty. Who cares? <sighs> anyway, yeah. Anyway, so all right. So uh, we've got we've got that. I've got an Albert Muller piece I want to talk about. Uh, Albert Muller uh, probably has one of the best op-ed pieces dis- uh, discussing New York State's. Uh, um, vote to legalize same-sex marriage. I'll be taking a look at that. And um, our sermon review today is an Andy Stanley sermon. Andy Stanley. And um, ha- have you all seen the movie Juno? Um, 
well, Andy Stanley uh, has a um, has a sermon series that he's been doing, and um, there at uh, North Point, and um, well. The name of it is Staying in Love, and I think this is like the typical seeker-driven, relevant, life principles, life tip type sermon. And uh, and Andy Stanley is actually considered to be one of the more popular, lucid leaders in this whole seeker-driven movement. And uh, so the name of the sermon series is Staying in Love, and the name of the sermon itself is called The Juno Dilemma. And uh, well, we're going to be reviewing that today as, uh, you know, as we kind of... You know, Get back into the saddle uh, here at uh, at Fighting for the Faith, and uh, so anyway, I, I've waxed eloquent enough. So without any further ado, let's uh, dive into the program proper. Now, um, let's. Uh, well, how do I want to do this? Um, I, I I think I know how I want to do this. So uh, here's what we're gonna do. I'm going to play for you um, audio from a Saturday Night Live sketch. Uh, back in the day, uh, Saturday Night Live had John Lovitz on the program. And John Lovitz, well, he had a character that was um, a chronic and habitual liar. And in this episode uh, that you're going to be listening to, uh, we're going to be listening to John Lovitz and Pee Wee Herman uh, uh, having a conversation in jail. Now, all of this is in preparation for our Ergen Kaner uh, sighting uh, uh, via Brett Ship. So uh, here, here's the uh, audio from this. Here's... Uh, uh, John Lovitz and Pee Wee Herman. Did I tell you? Hey, hey, you can't bring him in here. This is my cell. Yeah, yeah, the warden said I could have it all to myself. <laughs> Shut up, you liar, huh? What? Hey, I resent that. That guy calling me a liar. I spent five years of Pathological Liars Anonymous getting cured. I even took a lie detector test. I had the highest score that ever seen in five, uh, ten years. <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah, ten years, yeah. I'm, a uh, Flanagan, Tommy Flanagan. What's, what's your name? Herman Peewee. <laughs> so, what are you in for, Tommy? Me? Oh, uh, I work here. Yeah. I just came in to take a nap. <laughs> well, that's a relief. <laughs> At least I'm not in here with a bunch of hardened criminals. Oh, I am a criminal. I don't get it. How can you be uh, a criminal and work here? I don't know. I... Oh, it's because I've never been caught. Yeah, that's it. I'm a, uh, I'm a car uh, jewel thief. Yeah. I stole the hope to, uh, the crown jewels. I didn't hear anything about that. Well, that's because they don't know they're missing. Yeah. So, uh, what are you in for? Robbery, extortion, or murder? Speeding. <laughs> yeah, uh... Yeah, I was speeding away from a bank I robbed. <laughs> bank robber, huh? I was a bank robber when I was a kid. Yeah, I was uh, 12 years old at the time. Yeah, I used to rob five banks a day, six days a week. Then on the day off, I uh, was a pickpocket. Yeah, that's it. I never robbed a bank when I was a kid. My mom wouldn't let me. But, uh... But I trained my dog to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my dog, he could sit, roll over, and rob banks. No kidding. Yeah. Except, uh... Except he got run over chasing a Brinks truck. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw that accident. Well, <laughs> he asked me, he got what was coming to him. You know, it's getting so you can't hardly walk down the streets anymore. I just the other day, I was uh, walking home from robbing uh, uh, Fort Knox. And the fifth uh, time, I suppose. <laughs> well, now you're being silly. <laughs> anyway, I, I was walking on my way home, 
And all of a sudden, this man walks up to me, and he sticks a gun in my face. So you killed him? No. No, I, uh, I flipped him. Yeah, that's what I did, and it turned out he was a Russian spy. Yeah, yeah, that's it. He was, uh, he was the head of the KGB. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think I remember that. I was the pres... I was the head of the CIA at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a uh, it's on Hulu if you want to see it. The name of it is Tommy in Jail, and uh, I pray that I pray I play this in in honor of well the latest Ergen Kaner sighting. Uh, here's um, uh, Brett Ship's report from WFAA down there in, uh, in I think they're in the Dallas-Fort Worth if area. If there's such a thing as a controversial lightning rod Baptist minister, then one is headed to North Texas. He's the former head of Jerry Falwell's Liberty Baptist Seminary, and his claims of having terrorist ties have clouded his credibility and perhaps his future. Channel A's Brett Ship has more tonight. Let me tell you what the last two weeks of my life have been. I got hit with oranges. Not what you might expect to hear from the Dean of Theology at Liberty Baptist Seminary, but it's part of the Ergun Kanner mystique and legend of being raised a radical Muslim in Turkey and an enemy of America. I hated you. That may be harsh, but as Dr. Hayes told you, I was, my madrasa, my training center was in Beirut. And he says he was trained to be a terrorist when his family moved. And so we came to America. It was 78. Yeah, yeah, it was 78. That's when we came to America. Yeah, yeah, from Beirut. I, I, was, I was training on how to, how to blow up Americans. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was doing. Once here, Canner says he converted to Christianity, then rose to national prominence after 9-11. That's when Tom Rich of Jacksonville, Florida, first heard his message. He said, this is a quote, that he was trained to do that which was done on 11 September. Okay, which means, uh, in no uncertain terms, I was trained to be a terrorist. You know, I was raised to be a terrorist. But last summer, Canner's story started to unravel when skeptics found evidence that despite his claims... I walked into the Stells Road Missionary Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio, in full gear, full gefia, and a Quran. The self-proclaimed young jihadist actually moved to the U.S. from Sweden, not Turkey, in 1969, not 1978. And yeah, I, I, I meant 69. I, sorry, did I say 78? Yeah, yeah, that's a ticket. Grew up not carrying a Koran, but looking and acting like most every other kid his age. Yeah, they have his um, junior high and high school um, uh, yearbook photos, and he, he really doesn't look like a jihadi. He looks like uh, uh, an 80s kid. The discrepancies proved so damaging, Canner was demoted at Liberty and is now headed for North Texas. What? He's got a job? Uh, what? To become vice president at Arlington Baptist College, home to 200 students and maybe a not-so-welcoming staff, one of which tells News 8... I find it reprehensible that the leadership of Arlington Baptist College would hire a man who is very clearly profiteering from the tragedy of September 11. Right, yeah. Back in Florida, blogger Rich says giving counter credibility takes away from the church. Really calls into question the integrity of the organization that he uh, represents. And, um, and it makes it harder to spread the gospel to, to people 
when they know that Southern Baptists actually are not holding this guy accountable. Cantor did not respond to our request for an interview, but is on the record saying he is only guilty of uttering discrepancies. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I uttered uh, discrepancies. Yeah, that's what they were. They were just discrepancies. Making pulpit mistakes. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. It was a pulpit mistake. Yeah, yeah. Arlington Baptist President Dr. Dan Moody declined an on-camera interview but told us by email, Dr. Canner has our full confidence and we are excited about the future of our school. <laughs> really? You're going to hitch your wagon to that star? Okay. We consider all the controversy to be in the past and we are moving forward with full confidence. How can it be in the past? He hasn't repented. He hasn't confessed his sin. All we got is these... Yeah, it was a pulpit mistake. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I, all I did was speak discrepancies. That's right. Yeah. And while Liberty Baptist Seminary officials found Cantor made factual statements that are self-contradictory. I'd like a list of the factual statements that were self-contradictory. Yeah, I don't think that's yet been released from the folks there at Liberty. The chairman of the panel that investigated him says we never once found that he lied. Uh, right, he just made f f factual statements that were discrepancies and pulpit mistakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'd like to ask the folks there at uh, Liberty, was he really trained to be a jihadist? Hmm? Was he really, did he really convert to Christianity when he was in full Muslim gear with his Koran? Hmm? I mean... <sighs> What seems to be at issue now is whether his detractors can now find it to forgive. Brett, uh, well, <clears throat> Brett, uh, listen, uh, Brett, I've I've enjoyed your company, and uh, here here's the deal. Um, in Christianity, uh, forgiveness is absolutely something that is central and core to the Christian faith. And when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That doesn't mean that we give somebody a well, carte blanche to just basically keep on sinning and do what they want to do. You don't turn the grace of Christ into a license to sin. Now, I, for one, am more than willing to extend forgiveness to uh, Ergen Kanner, Kaner, whatever. Um, but um, I, I, I just don't think that we've actually uh, seen Ergen um, repent. I don't think we've seen him confess his sins. We, I don't think we've see, we've actually heard the real story. In fact, the story that has been released regarding uh, Dr. Canner is that, uh, well, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's just phony baloney, and it, it has about as much credibility as a John Lovett's uh, pathological liar sketch. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just on my way home from from Robin Fort Knox. Yeah, yeah. When 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 the head of the KGB tried to help hold me up. Yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, <clears throat> no, it's not a matter of forgiveness. It's a matter of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Ergen Kaner needs to come clean. Ergen Kaner needs to uh, needs to uh, fess up. Uh, I don't think he has, and unfortunately, because he's now um, headed to this um, this uh, this Baptist uh, college in uh, North Texas, uh, my fear is, is that that's going to give him ground from which he can continue to, well, let's say less than um, accurate statements. 
and uh, continue his attack against sound biblical theology. Because it not only was uh, Ergen Kainer somebody who told some pretty tall tales, he was also a very, very, very strong voice against the doctrines of grace in the Reformation. Just, you know, it's just something I noticed about him. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. And now presenting for your listening pleasure, Majestic Mystery by Brian McLaren, read by Reginald Bumper Scatter. Oh, majestic mystery. Oh, mysterious majesty. My small hand can never grasp you. I can only hold it open. I don't like this at all. Majestic mystery. I think I'm going to be sick. Mysterious. He's saying words, but I'm not even sure it's English. Small mind. Ah! My appendix just turned inside out. Someone help that poor man and call the paramedics. What's all this then? That poor man appendix is just turned inside out. Well, that doesn't sound good. It's not every day that people appendixes do that. What was he doing? Listening to the emergent poet on stage. He didn't tell me there was emergent poetry being read? Right. Everybody evacuate the building immediately. Here come the Navy SEALs. What seems to be the trouble? Somebody in that building is reading emergent poetry. Have you set up a soundproof perimeter? No, I haven't had time. Oh, we can't help you then. What do you mean you can't help us? Too dangerous. Too dangerous? Don't get cheeky with me. You've seen but a small taste of emergent poetry's destructive power. It only gets worse with each passing stanza. Game over, 
over, dude. Game over. Quick, get that man into quarantine. His soul's been sucked out from his nostrils. Isn't there anything you can do to help that poor man? Afraid not. The only answer we have now is to nuke the site from orbit. Search the area and make sure no one's hiding in the refrigerator. We can't have any survivors. It's been nice serving with you, Chief. Likewise. Can't believe the world's come to this. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Right, we're back. Warning, beware of those telling tall tales. Talking about themselves incessantly. I remember the whole Mike Warnke thing. Ergen Kaner is, well, the our equivalent of Mike Warnke. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, and you can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. And, uh, well, right now we're in the middle of the dreaded summer season, which means that financially things kind of slow down for us. The problem is our bills don't slow down. So uh, we truly need your help during the summer months as well as during the regular months as well. And uh, when you get there, click on the Join Our Crew button. Uh, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 monthly to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And after you fill that out, uh, I will send you a link uh, whereby you can download our latest uh, EPUB book, uh, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel according to St. Matthew. VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew. Fantastic stuff. Worth the read. I guarantee you it'll stick out in your mind as, uh, well, a big contrast between what you're hearing and reading in that book as compared to how people are handling God's Word in so many of today's pulpits. And, uh, you know, this the contrast is stark, eye-opening, 
and educational. Now, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here. It's been a while since we've been able to do this. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. Boom, boom, boom. All right, that's right. Uh, right off of his appearance, his three-peat appearance on Anderson Cooper's uh, Ridiculous, um, uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, has uh, has posted a new video warning Obama not to provoke World War III. Now, I'm a little bit confused because I thought World War III la- started last year, according to William Tapley. Now, uh, in case you haven't figured it out, the reason why I play William Tapley updates is because uh, he demonstrates uh, perfectly how not to read the Bible. And uh, and uh, we'll we'll follow up this story with uh, with a an official statement from the folks there at um, Family Radio entitled "What Happened on May 21st," and basically do the comparative work to see if uh, well if the folks there at uh, Family Radio have actually been to the William Tapley School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Yeah. Anyway, so without any further ado, here is the latest lament from the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Here we go. It grieves me to realize that America the Beautiful will be burned with fire in one hour. I I had no idea this was going to happen. Sounds painful. Because the Whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation refers to Britain and America. And the Scarlet Beast, which Babylon rides, refers to international communism. I had no idea about that either. And we will be burned with fire, and our power will be taken away. So, uh, somber words from the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. And notice what he's doing. Um, He alone has cracked the code uh, regarding how to properly unravel the symbols in the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation, uh, it um, it is an apocalyptic book. Okay, now the first portion of it, it actually reads pretty straightforwardly. There's actual, there's actual epistles recorded by the Apostle John that were delivered to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, and, uh, and so Jesus himself dictated those epistles, those letters, to the churches. Fascinating stuff. 
worth the read, by the way, very much worth the read, because uh, many of the warnings that Jesus gives the churches in Asia Minor at the time of uh, the Apostle John, well, many of the problems exist today as well. And we learn from these epistles uh, Jesus' real thoughts and attitudes towards such discretions in the church. Now, and then immediately, immediately following those epistles, the Apostle John is literally whisked up into heaven, and he has a, a vision of heaven. And, uh, and in his vision of heaven, he sees, for lack of a better way of putting it, word pictures, word pictures that uh, have prophetic significance both for the people living at the time when they were originally recorded as well as for the church forever until Christ returns. There's stuff that pertains to uh, the time in which this the, the, the vision was recorded, as well as uh, prophetic visions that have to do with the end of the world and things pertaining to the Last Judgment. It's all kind of mixed up together. And if you want a good level-headed uh, commentary on the Gospel of Revelation, may I recommend uh, the CPH? They, they have a series of commentaries on New Testament books, but the one written by uh, uh, regarding Revelation is uh, from uh, Dr. Lewis Brighton, Dr. Lewis Brighton of Concordia Seminary in um, in uh, St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and uh, and he, he literally uh, uh, a, a a better scholar on the Book of Revelation does not exist today. I mean, this is this has literally been the life work of uh, of Dr. Brighton. And the nice thing about Dr. Brighton is he's not caught up in the fanciful, he's not caught up in the mysteries and things like that. And uh, and he really does a fine, fine job of handling the book of Revelation in such a way that you, you end up losing all of the spectacular and all of this kind of stuff that you're, that you're hearing William Tapley doing. So what Tapley is doing is, uh, to the Bible, to the book of Revelation, is what a lot of people do to it. He, he, now, granted, this, the symbols in the book of Revelation are symbols, and they do relate to things. Um, but uh, knows what he's done. He's come up with his interpretation. Well, the horror of Babylon refers to the United States and to Great Britain. Uh, the Scarlet Beast re- refers to, uh, you know, communism. I mean, things like that. And these are fanciful interpretations that really, in, in histor- historically, don't make any sense. Historically, and, and even hermeneutically, don't make sense any sense. This is the same kind of problems that we ran into with like Hal Lindsey. Remember, I hate to say this, this is going to be a whole bunch of listeners that are not going to remember Hal Lindsey. And uh, when I was uh, growing up in the church, uh, Hal Lindsey's uh, famous book, The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, you know, was making the rounds and, and, and he was practically guaranteeing the return of Christ uh, back in the 70s. And then we got, well, those went by and uh, and then we had a book written by Hal Lindsey. I think it was called uh, the the 1980s Countdown to Armageddon, something to that effect. And well, the 80s have come and gone. And uh, well, Hal Lindsey isn't much of a popular speaker nowadays. I don't even know if he's still alive. But uh, the point being, this is is that Hal Lindsey was engaging in this same hermeneutical trap, uh, basically thinking he had cracked the secret symbolic code. And uh, and was seeing things in the Book of Revelation that had never been seen by before by anybody in any generation, and and it, as a result of it, you get into all kinds of well quackery. And so, if you still have a copy of the Late Great Planet Earth, I mean, it's I'm sure it'd be fun to pull out and just have a good chuckle while reading it. 
But this is pretty much the same thing that William Tapley's doing. This is the Hal Lindsey technique. And so let's continue. On this program, I want to report on two more amazing prophecies from God, which are warnings specifically to America. Several YouTubers have asked me to comment on the crash of that Russian airliner yesterday because there were 44 people killed. And as you know, 44 is the number of Barack Obama and the United States in Bible prophecy. That's because in Daniel chapter number 7... I had no idea that the number 44 had to do with the United States in Bible prophecy. Did, didn't see that one coming, and you know I don't scan the newspaper headlines you know, to try to figure out the prophetic numerology. The leopard has four heads and four wings. That refers to Barack Obama because he is our 44th president. The leopard also refers to America because we also have four heads and four wings. The four heads being the four heads. <laughs> oh, man. I have four heads and four wings. I had no idea. No wonder people look at me funny. Heads of government, the president, the vice president, the secretary of the house, and the Supreme Court justice. These four leaders are the four heads. The four wings in America refer to our four branches of the military the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. Those are the four branches that are seated on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So those 44 killed on the Russian airliner refer to America and the destruction of America by Russia in World War III. Now, notice this. Notice this. Tapley's handling of the biblical text is almost identical to many, many, many false teachers out there. Now, the, the thing is, is that it's not hard to uh, spot William Tapley as, well, a nut, a, a, a quack, as somebody who doesn't quite, well, he doesn't, it's, he's a taco short of a combo plate, if you know what I mean. And the thing is, is that I expose you to William Tapley so that you can identify this same technique used by guys who have big mega churches who uh, fly in private jets uh, and and speak at uh, pastoral leadership conferences and things like that. This same technique is used by them as well. This is the same as the whore of Babylon being burned with fire by the Scarlet Beast. The 44 killed in that Russian plane crash refers to the demise of Obama and America. It does not refer to the demise of Russia. The eight who survive refer to Russia. Because as you know, the eighth beast in Revelation is the final beast. And the eighth beast will be international communism. That is the one world communist tyranny. The number eight also refers to the millennium and those who survive into the thousand year reign of peace. In the book of Revelation, the millennium is referred to eight times six times as the thousand years of peace and twice as the first resurrection for a total of eight times eight as you know in bible prophecy is a number of completion it's also interesting that among those eight survivors they were divided into two groups six adults and two children again this crash in russia of this airplane is a warning to both America and Russia 
It is a warning from. Okay, let's just assume for a second that uh, William Tapley has got it right. That the plane crash in Russia that killed 44 people was a warning from Almighty God to the people in the United States. What a pathetic warning. Uh, The reason I say that is because until I watched this video, I didn't even know that there was a plane crash in uh, in, in Russia. I, I, I was out of town. I was traveling. Didn't even care. Um, and uh, nobody that I saw when I was, you know, at any of the rest stops, uh, traveling between California and uh, in Indianapolis, no one was talking about the plane crash in in Russia, um, and uh, no one mentioned it. Never saw it on the news. By didn't when I turned on the radio when I was traveling through different towns, never heard a single news agency discussing it. And uh, and l- let's just say for a second that uh, he, again he's right. Um, the majority, the vast majority of the almost 7 billion people on the planet having heard the news story, if they've heard it at all, regarding the plane crash in Russia, um, the, the, the next thing on their mind is not going to be, this is, uh, this is Bible prophecy. So as far as warnings go, I mean, uh, good night. I mean. Talk about a lame warning. I mean, don't you think if God wanted to warn the United States, I mean, to really, truly warn us, that he would find a more effective means to warn us so that at the end of the warning, people would feel like, oh, wow, we've been warned. But I mean, here it's like, you get what I'm saying? Almighty God. The other warning from God to America which involved me personally, was my three-time appearance on Anderson Cooper's program on his Ridiculous. Of course, he was mocking me, but that is his job as a tool of the New World Order. Nonetheless, he was fulfilling Bible prophecy, very possibly unwittingly. In fact, this surprised me myself when I was on television for three weeks in a row. What could that refer to? I uh, it could refer to the fact that um uh Mr. Tapley that um well you're ridiculous as you know I refer to myself as the third eagle as found in Revelation chapter 8 verse 13 but the eagle flies through the air that in my case refers to the airwaves in other words television and the internet <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So the fact that you appeared on Anderson Cooper's Ridiculous three times refers to the fact that you, as the third eagle of the apocalypse, fly through the airwaves. Oh, man. The whoa, 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 which the eagle cried out, refers to the three times that I was on Anderson Cooper's program. So that's what that had to do with. I mean, I out of all the times I've read the book of Revelation, I didn't see that one coming. One of those three woes refers to World War Three. Yeah, but you said World War Three started last year with the whole North Korea incident. And, uh, you know, I, for a while I was asking the question, where is all the troop buildups and the major military campaigns associated with World War Three? It, it seems to have fizzled out. 
which it is my duty to warn America about, is World War III. Barack Obama is provoking communism. He started last November when he sent the aircraft carrier into the waters around North and South Korea. North Korea attacking South Korea on November 23rd was the first salvo of World War III. Barack Obama is expanding this war. Yeah, I mean, it's almost a year. I mean, talk, I mean, talk about like a fitzy you know, World War III. What a complete letdown. He is expanding it in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. He has expanded. How is he expanding World War III in Afghanistan when he just announced like troop withdrawals? I'm sorry, but I, I'm not just I'm just not getting it. it into Egypt and Libya. Now he is expanding it into Yemen. Barack Obama is a man of war. He is not a man of peace. Remember the Nobel Peace Prize, so-called Peace Prize, which he accepted. He used the word war in that speech 44 times. That was not accidental. God often warns us through numerology, in the Bible, and in other events which we see in our everyday lives. And so, in conclusion, once more, God is warning America. But are you listening, America? Like I said, if God's warning the United States uh, through this plane crash in Russia... He's picked the lamest way to warn the United States. I think when God gives a warning, people know that they've really, truly been warned. Now, talk about the <clears throat> the William Tapley School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Um, from the FamilyRadio.com website, the uh, headline reads, What happened on May 21st? The answer is nothing. <laughs> that I, I, I lived through May 21st. I lived to tell the tale. In fact, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I should get a T-shirt that says "I survived the rapture." Anyway, um, the uh, so what happened on May twenty-first? Well, according to Family Radio, this is the Herald Camping Organization. So, what really happened this past May twenty-first? What really happened is that God accomplished exactly what He wanted to happen. That was to warn the whole world that on May twenty-first, God's salvation program would be finished on that day. For the next five months, except for the elect, the true believers, the whole world is now under God's final judgment to accomplish this goal. God withheld from the true believers the way in which two phrases were to be understood. Had he not done so, the world would have never been shaken in fear as it was. <clears throat> uh, one phrase is, uh, quote, the completion of God's salvation program. The other is, quote, God's final judgment. The completion of God's salvation plan is concentrated in the word rapture. The phrase God's final judgment is concentrated in the word earthquake. These two words, earthquake and rapture, have been extremely important in our teaching of Judgment Day for May 21st. A critical understanding of these two words is the only change required to know why the unsaved are now living in a world that was not has not been horribly destroyed, and the elect have not been caught up with God. We always look at the word earthquake to mean the earth or ground is quaking or shaking violently. However, in the Bible, the word earth can include people as well as the ground. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read, quote, And Jehovah formed man out of the dust of the ground. Thus the word earthquake can also be understood to teach that mankind shakes. <laughs> <laughs> you're sitting there going, what are you saying? 
Right, exactly. We're just pouring in all kinds of new meanings and understandings of biblical words in order to come up with a, a basically tortured understandings of the Bible. <clears throat> the William Tapley School of Hermeneutics apparently is strongly at work there at the folk, uh, with the folks there at Family Radio. So we continue. So therefore, we have learned from our experience of last May 21st what actually happened. All of mankind was shaken with fear. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah. All of mankind was shaken with fear. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed, the earth or mankind did quake in a way that had never been shaken or quaken before. God had come spiritually to bring judgment upon the whole world. The second word, rapture, identifies with the idea of completion of God's salvation program. The catching up of all the elect meant that there was to be no more salvation activity to be done anywhere in the world by God. Each and every true believer had come eternally safe within God, with God in heaven. No more was there any aspect of God's salvation program that remained to be done. But the same thing became true this past May 21st. Even though no one was raptured, no one who had not become saved by that date can ever become saved. God tells us in Revelation chapter 22, verses 10 through 12, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of this prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is just, let him be unjust still. And he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his work it shall be done. Thus we have learned that except for somewhat different understanding of the words earthquake and rapture or catching up, no other past teachings of Judgment Day or the end of the world have been changed, and the timeline, the certainty of, its, of, of it, the proofs and the signs are all precisely the same. No other past teachings have been changed or modified. Indeed, on May 21st, Christ did come spiritually to put all of the unsaved throughout the world into judgment. But that universal judgment will not be physically seen until the last of the five-month judgment period on October 21st, 2011. We have also learned that God is still teaching that God has no pleasure in death of the wicked and will not punish the wicked beyond what is called for in Deuteronomy 25. That is, there is a distinct limit to God's wrath. Thus, we can be sure that the whole world, with the exception of those who are presently saved, those of the elect, are under the judgment of God and will be annihilated together with the whole physical world on July 21st, I'm sorry, October 21st, 2011, on the last day of the uh, present five-month period. On that day, the true believers, the elect, will be raptured. We must remember that only God knows who his elect are and that he, ha that he has saved prior to May 21st. You too, without your knowledge, may have become saved before that date. Anyone can continue to beseech God for mercy because salvation and the election program are entirely in God's hands. So there you go. The folks over at, at uh, Harold Camping's Family Radio have announced that God's salvation program, well, it's done. It's and If you're not already part of the elect, if you're not already saved, well, you are under judgment, and you, there's no way you can be saved. Because the pro, the salvation program, well, it's done. It's kaput. It's it's finished, and uh, the, the curtain has fallen. And so, but all of this happened spiritually because um, you know, because an earthquake can actually refer to people shaking as well. Yeah, see, see, yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, the, again, what's what's wrong here? Bad. Really bad. Really, 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 really bad hermeneutics. Um, may I recommend a book? Uh, Milton Terry's book entitled Biblical Hermeneutics. You can actually find it at Google Books. It's a, it's uh, it's in the public domain. Um, if you would like 
a good college-level course on biblical hermeneutics and how to rightly handle God's Word. Uh, Milton Terry's book, um, Biblical Hermeneutics, it's a classic. And uh, it, it, it is a classic in in what we call the historical grammatical method. It's a good place to start, if you know what I mean. Um, and it'll save you from people like Harold Camping and William Tapley and folks like that. Anyway... Um, looking at my time here, um, I'm going to have to save the Albert Muller piece until tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to take our second break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to spend a little bit of time listening to an Andy Stanley sermon. And uh, wait to see how he handles the biblical text. Now, if you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. (laughs) 
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon... Um, today's, um, uh, 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 relationship counseling, um, session, uh, group therapy, uh, comes to us via North Point Church, uh, in, uh, Alfreda, Georgia. Andy Stanley presiding. This one's going to be a little bit tricky to listen to uh, because how he handles God's word is, um, well, not so good. And what I mean by that is, is that he like completely omits very important information. But we'll, we'll get there when we get there. So the name of the sermon, uh, Staying in Love, Staying in Love, the Juno Dilemmas and and. The dilemma that's presented here is found in the movie Juno. Juno, it's in that movie. Yeah, you you get it. Anyway, without any further ado, here is uh, Andy Stanley and uh, Staying in Love, the Juno Dilemma. Here we go. Thank you for choosing to listen to the North Point Ministries Andy Stanley Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast of our Best of North Point series. Today is the first part in the four-part series entitled Staying in Love. It's never been easier to fall in love and never been harder to stay in love. Is it even possible for two people to be happy together forever? Yes. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave us the foundation for enduring love. <clears throat> oh, okay, we got a problem. Uh, we, we, we've really got a problem. Uh, was the reason why Jesus came to earth was to give us the enduring, uh, the foundation for enduring love so that relationships can stay together? Yeah, what's he doing with Jesus here? That's my question. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave us the foundation for enduring love. Listen as Andy reveals the simple yet powerful principle. Reveals the simple yet powerful principle? What are you doing with the biblical text here? Strip mining it for some kind of a principle. Hmm. I'm always a little bit hesitant to mention movies and messages because it sounds like I'm endorsing movies or telling everybody to go see a movie. And there's usually something great about every movie, and there's usually something not so great about every movie. But because you're such a mature audience, I thought I would uh, kind of branch out and ask you this anyway. How many of you have seen the movie Juno? Oh, good. Okay. How many of you have not seen it? Oh, okay. Now, third question. How many of you who have not seen it plan to see it? Okay, good, not many, because I'm about to ruin it for you. Okay, <laughs> just wanted to make sure how many emails I'll get, movie spoiled. Anyway, this won't ruin it. This will, this will make, you, make you want to see the movie. It's a, the story, as you probably know, even if you haven't seen it, about a teenage girl who gets pregnant, um, and she is... Um, then she has to decide what to do. So she just, you know, she goes to an abortion clinic and that's our family planning or whatever they call it. And that's not the route she wants to go. She lives with her. Okay. I'm going to point something out here. You're going to hear more, a, a, a more clear synopsis of the movie Juno than you are going to hear a synopsis of the teachings and ministry and mission of Jesus Christ. Weird, isn't it? Um, she decides to keep the baby. I mean, she, she decides to have the baby and to give it up for adoption. And then so she meets this couple, 
And then the couple, she finds out that they're having trouble. So her relationship with this guy who wasn't really a boyfriend is kind of a disaster. Her parents' marriage, we don't know much about it. It's kind of been a disaster. Now there's this couple who is going to adopt her baby, and their marriage or relationship is kind of a, a disaster. And so there's this tender, tender conversation about two-thirds of the way through the movie with her dad. And I'll actually watch the movie on the treadmill. It's not a great treadmill movie because nothing explodes or blows up or anything. So it's a lot of conversation, you know. No need for surround sound with Juno. But during, she has this conversation with her dad. And in the movie, her dad is wonderful. He just, you know, it's a movie. So you, when she tells her dad she's pregnant, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, here it comes, here it comes. But he's just... He's great. And so they have this very tender conversation. And in the conversation, she asks a question that I think is so profound that it just, you know, I, I just stopped. I thought, that is a great question. And the context from which she asks it makes it a great question. But I think it's a question every single adult or every single college student and probably not high school student from college on all of us have either asked this question or we're going to ask this question, and you may not ask it the way that Juno asked it, but I just think this is a profoundly important question that sort of sits on the surface of our culture every single day for, for most of us. And, and, and here's the question. She asked it in two different ways, and we're going to put this up on the screen. Here's what she said. She's talking to her dad, just the two of them. She says, I guess I wonder sometimes if people ever stay together for good, like people in love. Did she ask it this way? Dad, I just need to know that it's possible for two people to stay happy together forever. I just okay, Now, question. Do I need a crucified and risen Savior for this? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, hasn't human history showed us that uh, people can stay together for their, for their entire lives as adults in marriage um, and be atheists. Um, they can be Buddhists. They can be Muslims. I mean, Muslims, I mean, it's not, they're not just, I mean, those Muslims, they're asking different set of questions, actually. Now that I think about it, they're asking, how can a, a how can a polygamous couple, uh, not a couple, but a, 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 a man and his wives stay together, you know, for the rest of their lives here on planet Earth? It makes you wonder, I mean, are, are the divorce rates high in Islam, is in Islamic families where polygamy is practiced? Um, but you know, so you know, again, um, why do I need a crucified and risen savior for any of this? I could get this advice from well, all kinds of sources. It, it just seems a little bit odd to me that supposedly Jesus is going to provide for me the the answer to this dilemma. You know, how can two people in love stay together for the rest of their lives? And you know, um, hmm, forever. I just need to know, is it possible for two people to stay happy together forever? In other words, Dad, I'm looking around, and it didn't work out for you and Mom. Dad, I'm looking around, and here's this couple. It ain't working for them. It's not working for me. I look around, and I'm just wondering, am I kidding myself? Am I shooting for something that you know, no one ever reaches? Is, is, this, is it even possible? Should I even set my mind to finding someone and being in love and staying happy together forever? Dad, is it even possible i think it for all of us at some juncture in our lives we ask that question and it's such a fascinating question because in spite of what you've seen and probably most of what you've seen relationally would lead you to say i don't know if it's possible in spite of the you know the state of your current marriage 
in spite of what you experienced in your previous marriage, in spite of what you saw happen with your parents' marriage, in spite of what you see in culture, in spite of the divorce rate, you know, all the stuff that would, you know, make us say, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible. I don't see it happening. You know, I don't know any good examples of that or very many good examples in our generation. In spite of that, there's something in you and there's something in me that would still say it's possible. And not only do we think, Okay, I got to point this out. You know, this kind of begs to be addressed here. Um, do you think that it's possible that the reason why we have such a high divorce rate, even among Christians, is due to the fact that all of us are by nature dead in trespasses and sins? All of us by nature are sinners. We all suffer from the condition. Each and every one of us has tested positive for being a sinner. And the um, the symptoms of being a sinner, well, it includes sin. And as a result of it, uh, it makes relationships difficult. You understand what I'm saying here? Um, yeah, I, I just... <laughs> call me skeptical here, but I, I, I just don't think that applying a principle is going to address the root problem. Yeah, there's no simple solution to this because the reason why relationships fail is because both husband and wife in every single married couple are they're both sinners. And they sin daily and they sin much against God and against each other. So um yeah, it's just I, I'm having a hard time thinking that you know that uh you know this you just find some simple tip some simple principle and it's going to make make all this so much easier and there's something in me that would still say it's possible and not only do we think it's possible you think and i think it's possible for us we think it's possible that in spite of how bad things have been for you or in spite of what you see happening in culture you still hold out a glimmer of hope that yeah maybe someday some way in my current relationship or a future relationship, I'm going to meet somebody and we're going to fall in love and we're going to stay in love and we're going to go out together. I mean, our, our last dates, we're going to may both be on walkers and we may be going down the hall to the, you know, the place where everybody eats at the nursing home, but baby, we're sitting next to each other and we're holding hands. You know, they may, may, may be shaking, but we are holding hands and people are going to look at us and go, wow, look how old they are. And they're still in love uh does this earn you any brownie points with god I mean, i i gotta know i mean uh do people who uh don't achieve this uh, do they go to hell you know this is supposed to be a christian church you know and we're kind of missing all the major important christian doctrine you know what i mean i think that's a little bit of the image of god in you and the image of god in me that, yeah, I got four good friends or five good buddies or, you know, I got some tennis partners and I've got some friends. The image of God in me? Hmm. What about dead and trespasses and sins, sinful by nature? And I've got some, you know, family. But there's something in me and there's something in you probably 
that would love to find that one someone special that I mean, you there, there's an intimacy level, there's a communication level, there's a I know you and you know me. And, and even as we get old and even as our bodies change and even as the world changes around us, and even though you're not the richest or the cutest or the prettiest or the most talented, and even there, you know, I can be tempted to compare. There's, there's just a thing. And we're gonna, we're gonna finish together. So your answer to the Juno question is, yeah, I think it's possible. But yeah, even though it's possible, I don't think it's probable. I think it's possible, and I even think it's possible for me. I don't even see this dilemma as like a dilemma that really needs to be addressed in church. For me. But will it happen? I hope so. I think it could. But I don't know. Now, we need to spend about 10 seconds talking about falling in love, and that's all it really requires is 10 seconds. Because the only requirement for falling in love is a pulse, right? I mean, if you have a pulse, you can fall in love. Some of you are in love with people you've never met. They're on TV and you're just in love. You just stare at him. You say, I'm so in love with him. I'm so in love with her. I mean, you know, she reads the news and you're in love with her, you know? You, so anyway, so it just doesn't, in fact, as we've already talked about, there are 1,500 organizations in this country, 1,500, that if you pay them your money and give them a profile, they will connect you with somebody with a similar profile. It is, it is and you may not believe this, it has never been easier to fall in love. There, it has never been easier to connect with a broader number of people because of, uh, of media and because of social networking. It has never been easier to fall in love, but I would argue, and I bet you would agree, it's never been more difficult to stay in love. And yet that's what we want. And we how, somehow think it's possible. And we keep looking around thinking maybe we're gonna find the one because there's something in you and there's something in me that wants to finish life and do life with that special someone. We don't wanna just be in a relationship. We don't wanna just survive the years. We wanna be in love, but it's getting more and more difficult. And there's several reasons why it's so difficult. And none of this is new information. Part of it's what you saw growing up, right? Part of it's what you experienced. The truth is very few people have ever been around a healthy romantic, you know, marriage couple relationship. Most people have never seen one. I mean, seen one like tracked with it over a period of years, having grown up in a home where your parents, you know, were on the same page and had the kind of relationship you wanted to have one day. Very few people have ever even seen it. So consequently, what's modeled for us and the law of relationship and the rules of relationship are so wrong, and yet they're the very ones we adopt that it makes it almost impossible for us to stay in love. I mean, here's what a lot of you, a lot of us grew up with, do unto others as they... Notice that it's the environment here that's impacting things. Um, not our sinful nature. Sin is, I hate to say it, it's, it's really not an environmental issue. Uh, we are born dead in trespasses and sins. Our environment plays into uh, what sins we end up you know, selecting for ourselves. Uh, those come into play. But the problem is it's much deeper than some kind of environmental uh, impact. And, you know, and here's the deal. I mean, I, I, my parents divorced when I was three years old. I've been married to my wife. We were high school sweethearts. I, you know, um, I've been married to my wife now for, uh, what is it, 22, 23 years? Um, and I didn't have a good model in, in, you know, for a good, healthy relationship. So, um, yeah, we got a problem here because he's describing sin 
in such a way that, you know, it's, we're victims of just bad environmental circumstances. But sin is much deeper than that. And the power to, uh, to overcome sin is not, well, let's just say it this way. It, it resides in the cross, not in me applying a particular tip or a principle, if you know what I mean. Anyway, we continue. What's modeled for us and the law of relationship and the rules of relationship are so wrong and yet they're the very ones we adopt that it makes it almost impossible for us to stay in love. I mean, here's what a lot of you, a lot of us grew up with. Do unto others as they deserve to be done unto, right? Do unto others as they do unto you. Isn't that it? Do unto others as your mood would have it. Do unto others to get, do unto others so as to get them to see things your way. Do unto others until you wear them down and get your way. Do unto others until you're ready to leave. I mean, as you think about the relationships you've tracked with either your friends in the office or your cousins or maybe even your parents or, you know, you know, when we look at relationships, you know, people may stay together, but they're not in love. You would, you, you assume they're, they're not what you want. It's just, there's just kind of surviving if they even stay together at all. So consequently, because of what most of us see growing up, and what most of us have had modeled for us, I mean, we're just completely ill-equipped. We've never seen one. And yet, all of us think one's possible, and we think we're candidates for that kind of relationship. The other thing, again, what on earth does this have to do with sound biblical theology? What does this have to do with what the Bible teaches? We're not, we're not even reading a text at this point. We're you know, this is some Juno dilemma, Juno dilemma, dilemma thrown into the, you know, to basically you know, to create this idea that there's a problem in the world. Well, right, there is a problem in the world. And what you're describing is a symptom of our collective sinful natures. What it takes for a child to grow up in, in a very, very um, nurturing environment and to leave adolescence and to be equipped to engage in healthy relationships in the future. In other words, here's what it would take to be fully emotionally, and we're going to, in two weeks, we're going to talk about emotions specifically, so hang in there, to be emotionally equipped to engage in long term relationship. Here's, here's all it takes. You need to grow up in a home where you get respect, and, and this is like massive doses of all of this. Respect, encouragement, comfort, security, support, acceptance, approval, appreciation, attention, and affection. Sounds like the family you grew up in, doesn't it? You get constant respect, encouragement, comfort, security. Everybody's there, nobody's leaving. Support, acceptance, approval, appreciation, attention, and affection. <laughs> now, if that's what it takes over a long period of time to equip us to engage in long-term relationships as an adult i mean if that's what we felt if that's what we need to have felt growing up i mean what are the odds of us being able to maintain a forever and happily ever after kind of relationship especially when we again um i got a problem here and and that is is that this is a church this is a sermon at a church and we're talking about Something that, well, I don't need a crucified and risen Savior for this. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, uh, this this is uh, this is love guru time stuff. And I, I just don't turn to the Bible for uh, love guru type advice. I, I don't turn to anybody for that. But if I was going to turn, you know, if I was going to look somewhere for love guru type advice... I wouldn't be going to the Bible per se. Yeah. People who didn't grow up getting that kind of stuff either. 
So consequently, what happens for most of us is we come into adulthood looking for someone from which we can get respect, encouragement, comfort, security, support, acceptance, approval, appreciation, attention, and affection. And I fall in love with you, but now that we're both in love with each other, I'm wondering, are you going to give me respect, encouragement, comfort, security, support, acceptance, approval, appreciation, attention, and affection, or are you just cute? (laughs) Or do you just have a good job? Because once we're in love with each other, what begins as a hug around the neck becomes a stranglehold. Give me affection, comfort, security, love. You know, I got to have it. I got to have it because I came into this thing with a deficit. You know, I've been malnutritioned in terms of love and affection and all that stuff. And I'm going to squeeze it out of you and you're going to squeeze it out of me. And I just wonder why I don't think you're so cute anymore. (laughs) And that car, so what, you know? And all of a sudden, the things that just, you know, created this emotional energy where we couldn't stay away from each other, somehow it starts to go away. Part of what makes it so hard is what we have felt and haven't felt. And here's a, just a disturbing statistic. And this has been true for years. This is this year's statistic, but it's been this way for years. 40%, 40% of the children born in this country this year will be born into homes where there's no dad. 40%. There will be no stable male influence at all, 40%. Now, we can argue all day long about single moms and nurturing and all that stuff, and I'm not here to try to to, to make a statement. I'm just telling you. If it takes all of that to equip someone to engage relationally and stay engaged relationally and be a healthy relationship, and 40% of the babies born in our country will never have a meaningful relationship with their father at all, I'm just telling you, they're going to struggle There's a deficit, and it's not there. Do you know that 100% of all infants born in the United States and in every other country on the planet, they're born dead in trespasses and sins? Did you know that? Yeah, that's a, that's an absolute 100%, and every single one of them needs to hear the gospel call of repentance and the forgiveness of their sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross. I, I mean... This, you know, popular psychology relationship advice um, sure is relevant. Yeah, I'm sure it really does a good job at drawing a crowd, uh, but it does nothing as far as discipling people in what the scriptures teach. There's a deficit and it's not their fault any more than it's probably your fault, but it's the reality. And yet you're equipped to fall in love. But I think in terms of what's been modeled and what we have felt, Many of us are not equipped to stay in love. And then there's another thing that makes this really, really difficult. Our culture, and you know this, none of this is new information. Our culture has a really low threshold of pain relationally. A really low... Again, notice the environmental uh, impact here. uh, Well, you see, you're you're just a product of, uh, you know, your parents and how they raised you. You're a product of your culture. And you got all these things working against you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's great. Um... What about sin? What about offending a holy and just God? What about breaking his law? I mean, because I, I, what you're talking about is a very serious matter. God himself in his word says that he hates divorce. It's not that he just doesn't like it or he, he thinks that it's, it's not the best thing for us. The scriptures actually say that God hates it. And we're going to be judged someday. 
So um, this marriage thing is not just some small little thing where God's sitting there going, oh, come, 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 just apply these simple principles and it'll make everything all better. Right. Gone are the days where I said I do and I do means I do and I'm going to keep doing whether I like it or not and whether she or he likes it or not. We're just doing. We're we I do and we're we do. That's what we do. <laughs> that day's gone, right? That it just doesn't take a lot of pain. And plus, in our culture, the message you and I get every single day, and, and maybe this you think this is true and, you know, we can talk about that later. That the message we get every single day is if you're not happy in your current relationship, it's because you're with the wrong person. You chose poorly. You need to re-choose, you need to reboot, you need to get out, you need to start over because you chose poorly. Uh, does the sin of adultery, re- I mean, does it sound even remotely familiar to you here? I chose poorly, I need to reboot. Have you heard of the sin called adultery? There's even a commandment. In the Ten Commandments it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You need to reboot, you need to get out, you need to start over because you chose poorly. And if you'll just keep looking, you'll find that soulmate. And if you'll keep moving from relationship to relationship, eventually, eventually it's going to happen to you because you're finally going to meet the right person. But if you talk to people who've been married 20 years plus, who are still in love and ask them about that approach, They will tell you there were times along the way these 20 years that I wondered if I had the right person. That approach. Adultery is just just one approach of many in, in handling relationships, apparently. They will tell you there were times along the way these 20 years that I wondered if I had the right person. But I decided that the person I chose was going to be the right person. And we're so glad we worked through those difficulties. Because choosing the right person is part of it. But learning to be and to become the right person is the other part of it. And it's the part of it that we get no help from, no help for, I should say, from culture and from the world around us. Now, you know, so if we just stop there, odds are, you know, you may want to finish with somebody and you may want to stay in love forever. You may want your current relationship to, you know, become more about in love than just surviving life you, you, you may want it to be that way, but I'm telling you, the odds are against you. The odds are against me. It may be possible. It is not probable. Aren't you glad we don't close in prayer there? <laughs> Send you home encouraged. Now, here's, here's, here's the thing. Look up here. This is, this, is, this is so important, okay? This is so important. Into that chaos that all of us can relate to. I mean, we've all been dinged up and hurt and got stories, whether it's your parents. Dinged up and hurt. Notice the victim mentality. You're just a victim of things. What about you being a perpetrator of sin against a holy and just God? Notice that's missing here. Relate to. I mean, we've all been dinged up and hurt and got stories, whether it's your parents or your previous marriage or you're watching one of your kids go through something. Into all of that chaos, Jesus speaks 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, he's with his God. Oh, okay. So Jesus, the love guru, he, he spoke from on high. He gave he, the, the golden principle of how to have a lasting marriage relationship. Uh, it, it, he, he was up on the Sermon on the Mount, and this, this, this golden nugget uh, just came flying out. And it's so deep and so profound. It'll solve all your relationship problems. All you got to do is apply it. Hmm. 
eyes, and he gives us the foundation for enduring relationships. He gives us the foundation. Really? So that Jesus gives us the foundation for enduring relationships. How come when I read through the Gospels, I don't see a chapter heading or, you know, a section heading in the Gospel that says the foundation for enduring relationships? You know, for instance, when I read the Gospels, I, you know, there's there's different sections. You ha- you have Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. And so in your Bible, you know, it doesn't say this in the original language, but the people who put your Bible together know that you need to go back into your scriptures and, and look for particular things. So you're going, where was that feeding of the 5,000? I know it was in the Gospel of Luke, and I can't remember what chapter. And so you think it was somewhere in the middle. So you start flipping into the middle of Luke, and you start reading. Uh, the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of... Uh, and here we go. Jesus feeds the 5,000. That's the heading. How come not, none of the headings, section headings in the New Testament read, Jesus gives the foundation for enduring relationships? Hmm? How much do you want to bet it's because that's really not what Jesus was doing in this verse that we're about to hear? And it's so simple. It's so counterintuitive. It's so not a part of the way we normally think. It is a paradigm shift. It's re, you know, it's readjusting north on your relational compass. It, but it's so simple that even when I say it, it's kind of like, ooh, yeah, 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 I heard that before. Now give me something rich. Give me something practical. Andy, I've got her here. Now come on, work on her. Come on, she's here, buddy. Here, this is your big chance, okay? She didn't want to come because she's, you know, but come on, come on, come on, come on. Die, you know, I got him here. You know, I'm t- he told me to bring the CD home. I'm bringing the CD home. So you got to, this is it, you know, we're hanging by a thread. I'm telling you, but, but again, don't take my word for it. Just find the people, if you can find them, who you look at their marriage and you go, that's where I want to be when I'm that age. That's, where I, that's what I want going on in my relationship next time I have one or in my current relationship. And here's what you're going to find. This is so simple. It's so powerful. It's so rare. It's so accessible. It's so available. If two people will simply accept this basic, basic teaching of Jesus. This is in John chapter 13, verse 34. We're just looking at one verse. John chapter 13, verse 34. Verse. We're going to get a single, solitary verse. Hmm. Why is it that in my Bible, John chapter 13, where this verse appears, that the section heading does not at all read, Jesus gives the foundation for enduring relationships. Hmm. Weird, huh? Jesus. This is in John chapter 13, verse 34. We're just looking at one verse from Jesus. One more verse in just a minute. Here's what he says. He's got his guys together and he says, a new command I give you. There was guys, you got the 10 commandments and you got 700 other, you know, Old Testament laws to support the 10 commandments. I'm going to give you a new one. And when I tell you what it is, it's not even really that new. And the little Greek word for new can mean other things. And I'm wondering if maybe it means something else. Because the word can mean extraordinary. It can also mean hidden and, and recently discovered. It can mean remarkable. Maybe I'm gonna, he's saying, I'm going to give you a remarkable command. It's so remarkable that you're going to be unimpressed. But if you sit on it for a while, you'll realize this is a remarkable command. And here's his command. Love one another. Oh. Man, Andy, you should have studied harder. Is that it? Okay. Yeah, you really should have studied harder, Andy. Um, 
you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. There are three primary rules for biblical hermeneutics, okay? The three primary rules are context, context, and context. You have got to read passages in context. Otherwise, you, you the, the person pulling these verses apart may actually be communicating information to you that was never intended to be communicated. Now, notice that this is a sermon about lasting relationships, the Juno dilemma, how to stay in love. That's what the this, what this sermon series is all about. Now, here's the question that I have for you. If I were to go into John chapter 13, verse 34, would I find Jesus discussing... Um, relationship foundations as it pertains to staying in love. Is that what he's discussing in chapter 13? Well, the answer is the only way I'm going to find out is if I go back and I read this in context. So I'm going to read John chapter 13 in context. We're going to start at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Okay, now, immediately, narratively, we know where we're at, historically, where we're at. We are in the upper room. This is the the Passover. This is Thursday night before Jesus is going to be crucified. Okay, so Jesus is troubled in his spirit, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what he needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, it's interesting here. The Greek word for love here is agape. This is a a particular kind of love. Um, let me let me read this. Uh, aga, uh, you know, agapao is the verbal form of this. To have a warm regard for an interest in another, to cherish, to have affection for love. Okay. Um, it's uh, by human beings, a broad range of persons apart from recipients of special devotion. 
um, recipients of a special devotion. For instance, uh, Jesus is we give him agape, agapao type of love. Um, so here's the deal: is that there's four different types of love, you know, mentioned in the Greek language. You have eros, you have agape, you have there's there's phileo, there's other types of of words here. Now, notice here that in context, Jesus is talking that a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. He's speaking to his disciples. Now, he's not saying to his disciples, hey, you guys, I want you to have deep, lasting, and meaningful marriage-like relationships with each other. That would be Jesus promoting homosexuality, and he's doing nothing of the sort here in this passage. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, This isn't Jesus giving the foundation for lasting relationships. He's talking to his disciples and telling his disciples to have loving fellowship with each other, that their relationships with each other as Christian brothers is to be marked by love and forgiveness and genuine concern for each other. And that, and we know this because the next part of the passage is that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Jesus wasn't saying to Peter and John, I want you to have a lasting marriage relationship. That's not what he was saying at all. And yet, Andy Stanley here is completely strip-mining the scriptures, and he's misapplying this verse. This verse isn't doesn't solve the Juno dilemma at all. This isn't even about marriage relationships. This is about something completely different. And because he's taken it out of context he's given us a single verse and now he's going to he's going to further complicate things and the reason why he's going to further complicate things is that keep this in mind all sermons that have to do with giving people relevant advice to to make it relevant for their lives all of that boils down to the law the thing that you've got to do and you've got to apply now, the other thing, and, I, and I've alluded to this, and I want to make the point here now, is that the offended God, the holy and just God who commands us, thou shalt not commit adultery, that God who we will all have to stand before and give an accounting of our life on the day of judgment, that God and that aspect of these commands is not even brought up. It's, it's as if Jesus is just some guru who wants you to take his advice. But no mention is made of sin. No mention is made of you as a perpetrator of, of, of sinning against and breaking God's commands. And the consequences of that, that none of that is even, even alluded to. It's completely omitted. But the scriptures tell us what the purpose of the law is. The purpose of the law is to convict us of our sin. Romans chapter 3, let me start at verse 9. What then, are, are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all people, both Jews and Greeks, they are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Yet we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human will be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law, to give you knowledge of your sinful condition and the fact that you are going to be held accountable to God someday for your transgressions of his holy and just and good law. So here Andy Stanley is giving us a verse out of context. And notice it's a law text. I give you a new command, love one another. And it's not talking about relationships, at least not marital relationships. It's talking about how you love your Christian brothers and sisters. And yet, in hearing this, Everybody who's listening to the sermon, you and me included, have all broken this transgression. We have not loved our brothers as ourselves. We have not loved our spouses as we ought to. We have all transgressed this command of Jesus. And here the Apostle Paul links our transgressions against God's command to the fact that we're going to be held accountable to God someday. And this is not good news. Because immediately the question arises, yikes, what's the punishment for this sin? Answer, an eternity in hell. Okay, um, are you saying that because I haven't loved people correctly and haven't obeyed God's law correctly, that I have earned hell? That is correct. By transgressing God's law, you will be held accountable to God someday. And you have earned, by your willful disobedience to God's commands, you have earned hell. Immediately going, hey, whoa, what do I do? How how do I avoid that sentence? There's nothing you can do to, to pay off this debt. There's nothing you can do to satisfy the justice of God because of the sins that you've committed. So is there any hope? Yeah, there is hope. And the hope is in Jesus Christ because he loved perfectly. He loved us perfectly for us. He died on the cross and our sin was put on him and he endured the wrath of God in our place. And he is calling all sinners everywhere, including you and me, to repent and be forgiven of our sins by what he's done on the cross. And his righteousness, just like our unrighteousness was given to him, it was imputed to him, his righteousness by faith is imputed to us. And God is offering us a full and complete pardon and calling us to repent and be forgiven of our unlovingness towards each other, of our adulteries, of our lying, of our theft, of our murdering, of our not loving God with our whole heart. That is is the gospel message, and that also, notice, rightly handles the law. But Andy Stanley here is giving us a biblical principle that we need to apply, love one another, and and just apply it, and poof, everything will will be great in your life. But what about the holy and just God whose commands we have transgressed? 
what about the fact that we are not victims of sin? We are actually perpetrators. What about that? That doesn't get even like an honorable mention in this sermon. We continue. Is that it? (laughs) But listen to what Jesus does, and it'll slip right by you if you're not careful. Jesus takes a word that we normally use as a noun, and he makes it a verb. It's an imperative. It's a command. He says, look, look, guys, here's the deal. I want you to go and love one another. I I know love is something you fall into like a pool and out of like a high chair. I mean, I realize love is like that. That's not the kind of love he's talking about here. Again, this is not that's not correctly handling this text. Okay, and. The other thing here is that Jesus didn't create a new verb. Agapao is an, was a fully established Greek verb at the time of Jesus' ministry. So even Andy Stanley's point that Jesus is taking this noun and telling us to verb, that, that does, it, linguistically this doesn't even make any sense. I know love is something you fall into like a pool and out of like a high chair. I mean, I realize love is like a noun, okay? But I'm making it a verb. I want you to love one another, which means Jesus would not have... Jesus did not create the the Greek verb agapao. He did not create it. He is not the creator of it. No, no, no. You don't used to. You used to noun. You don't used to verb. Are you loving her? Well, so here's what I want, here's what I want y'all to do. I'm going to fix your relationship. I want you and I want you. I want y'all to go home and I want you to love each other. But we don't love each other. Well, you ought to. You're married. But we don't. No, no, no. You're confusing noun and verb. You're saying you're not feeling it. I want want to help you feel it. You got to do it, and then you feel it. You see, your relationship started off feeling it, you know, and and then the feeling went away, and you're trying to get the feeling back, and you're thinking the only way to get the feeling back is to meet somebody new, because let's say, when did I feel the most in love? Oh, when I met that new person. I think I'll go meet a new person to get the feeling back. Jesus says, no. Here's how it works. If you want to maintain it, if you want to foster it, if you want to you know, no, Jesus is not saying if you want to maintain it, if you want to foster. He's not saying anything of the sort. Notice by ripping this verse out of context, he can make Jesus say whatever he wants him to say. But Jesus didn't say any of these things. And nor did he imply them, nor did he try to communicate any of the things that Andy Stanley is making Jesus say at this point. When you read the passage in context, it's not about marriage relationships at all. Foster it if you want to you know, blow on that flame, then you need to quit treating love like a noun and you need to treat it like a verb. And I want you to go home and I want you to love one another. Law, not gospel, all law. Now, what about the holy and just God whose laws have been transgressed? What about that? And I want you to love one another. See, here's kind of the bottom line. This is the, just the beginning. We're four weeks going. Okay, this is just the beginning. The foundation, the foundation for staying in love is to make love. Pause. A verb. Now, that was clever. But now you'll remember it, right? Listen, in fact, let's just, let's just say that together because it's just fun to say in church, Okay. 
Really, the foundation, the foundation for long-term in-love relationship is making love a verb. You've got- but love is already a verb. Agapao was already a Greek verb long before Jesus ever said love one another. He's not even rightly handling the text here. Listen, in the relationship, the feeling is the caboose of the train. It ain't the engine. It starts off as the engine. I understand that. But then it goes to the back of the train. It becomes the caboose. In fact, I'll tell you something I'm not going to tell anybody else, and I don't want this to leave the room, okay? (laughs) The more you make love a verb, the more you'll make love. But you didn't hear that from me, okay? Now, here's what he says. He says, I want you to, I want you to learn how to actively love one another. This is, love is something you do. And when two people who at some point have been in love or who are in love, when they, and we're gonna talk for four weeks, so don't say, hey, tell me what to do, we're gonna get there. When they actively love one another, guess what it does? It rekindles and continues to kindle and inflame and, and enrich and make better the in love part of the relationship. But you have to love one another. It's a command, love one another. But he doesn't stop there. And maybe this is the new part of the command. Listen to the rest of the verse. New command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. In other words, he says, I don't want you to take your cue from culture. Although there's some things that can be redeemed from culture relationally, it's not all bad. He is not talking about marriage and relationship advice here at all. You keep making Jesus say things he didn't even say at all in these texts. Odd. One another. In other words, he says, I don't want you to take your cue from culture. Although there's some things that can be redeemed from culture relationally, it's not all bad. I don't want you to necessarily take your cue from your parents. I mean, they have, may have survived, but if you look at their relationship and they just, you know, finally dad moved upstairs and they've got two kitchens and they're in the same house. But I mean, they, he'd rather go on vacation with, you know, the dog than take your mom. And, you know, it's, they're together, they're together, but it's not what you want. It's going, maybe you don't need to take your cue from your parents about what it means to love one another. And maybe you shouldn't take your cue from your, you know, your parents-in-law or your fiance's parents or, you know, this person you're in love with's parents. I mean, I don't know where you take your cues from, but Jesus says, for sure, for sure. When you think about what does it mean to love like a verb, I want you to take your cue from me. And if you'll allow me to, I will teach you how to love, not how to be in love. You've got a pulse. You're good. Jesus isn't saying any of this in this verse, and by taking it out of context, ripping it from its what Jesus actually said, he's pouring all kinds of dialogue into Jesus' mouth that Jesus never uttered at all. That is some dangerous, dangerous mishandling of God's word. Love, you've got a pulse, you're good. I want to teach you how to stay in love. But if it's going to happen, love must be a verb, not just a noun. To stay in love, you've got to make love a verb. Now, okay, with you, tracking with you. Later on, years later, the apostle Paul comes along, takes the same idea and says it in a different way, except he uses a bad word. I mean, this is, this is bad words, word we don't like. 
He uses a word that's actually gotten Christians in a lot of trouble, but it's unnecessary because the word is so offensive that we kind of discount everything he says about this. But the Apostle Paul takes the very idea Jesus said, and he just uses a different word than love, and it's a word that sticks a little harder and is a little bit more of a, I don't know about that, but I'm telling you, it's the very same thing, and it's an extraordinarily powerful word that helps illustrate what Jesus meant when he said love one another. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Just going to look at this, this verse. Ephesians 5, 21. Here's what he said. Ready for, here starts off with the bad word. Submit to one another. And then here's the Jesus part again. Out of reverence for Christ. Okay. Um, yes, there, there, are, um, there are some third use of the law commands given in Ephesians chapter 5. But they are not given until the gospel is clearly again preached to the disciples there in the churches in Ephesus. Why? Because you cannot understand the Christian life apart from the gospel. It is the gospel that motivates us to good works, not the law. It is the gospel that regenerates us and creates a new human being, a a brand new regenerate Christian, and that regenerate Christian inside of us, is born again by the powerful working of God the Holy Spirit, and by nature it does good works. And Ephesians chapter 5 gives us advice, if you would, third use of the law type of stuff that is for Christians only and never divorced from the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Christian good works, Christian sanctification flows from, is motivated by, and begins with, ends with, and abides in Christ and him crucified for our sins. So we read Ephesians chapter 5. I'll start at verse 17. Keep in mind that the gospel frames the bigger context here. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice um, here, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is not speaking to wives or husbands. In In that context, it's talking about Christian to Christian. Now, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blameless and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now notice here, in the very chapter that Andy Stanley has ripped a verse from and misapplied it, there is very practical, practical imperatives given to Christians in light of the gospel. Why didn't he preach those in context? Probably because it didn't fit the message theme that he selected ahead of time. So rather than God's word dictating what Andy Stanley's message was, Andy Stanley picked it and then went to go find the verses that he thought would best fit his message. Rather than God's word dictating what the message is, and he, the pastor, preacher, rightly exegeting and and doing expository teaching out of the text, engaging in exegesis rather than eisegesis. But that's what Andy Stanley's doing. He's, He's engaging in eisegesis, not exegesis. This is a bad, bad, bad mishandling of the text. And then right after this, we're not going to look at it today. Right after this, Paul begins to talk about men and women's relationship and husbands and wives. He goes right into it. He says the bottom line, the foundation, the starting not, block for people who are going right to... But we're not going to talk about it today. Into it. He says the bottom line, the foundation, the starting block for people who are going to stay in love is mutual submission. Mutual submission. Mutual submission means I say, you know what, in our relationship... Yet Ephesians 5.21 isn't about husbands and wives. It's about Christians mutually submitting to each other. You're the priority. And you say, no, no, Andy, in our relationship, you're the priority. I go, no, no, no. In our relationship, you're the priority. No, Gomer, you know, you're the priority. No, Luann, you know, you're the priority. In other words, the big conflict in the relationship is who's going to be first, who's going to take priority. And, you know, I'm saying it's you and you're saying it's me. That's mutual submission. Let me just tell you, I don't know if you've ever seen that in a marriage. I don't know if you've ever seen that between a man and a woman or between people in love. But I want to tell you something. When you see it, it's powerful. It is rare because it's scary because somebody has to go first. Somebody has to say, you know what? You're the priority in this relationship. And even if you don't make me the priority, I'm making you the priority in the relationship. When two people get that going on, I'm telling you, love is alive and well in that relationship. It's so rare. Very few of us listening to this message have ever seen it. But when you see it, you go, that is what I want. Paul says, this is what Jesus was talking about. Mutual submission. No, that's not what Paul said at all. You're engaging in eisegesis. You're mishandling the biblical text. That is what I want. Paul says, this is what Jesus was talking about. Mutual submission. You first. No, you first. No, you first. No, you. Now, you may never go in the building because you'll be holding the door for the rest of your life, but it's okay. You first. No, you first. No, you know, we're going we're gonna to talk about this a lot in the next few weeks. But that's the, that's the beginning. That's the foundation. Love actively verb one another. Specifically, submit. Submit means you place yourself under the other person, not because by birth order or by you know, financial status or you know, some other caste system, you're not as important. That's not it at all, at all as we're going to see next week. It's a choice you make. It's a choice you make. It's a decision you make, regardless of who I am and what I had and what I brought into the marriage and who I'm related to and whatever else. I am choosing to place myself under you as you choose to place yourself under me. You say, Andy, that doesn't even make sense. I know it doesn't really make sense, but I'm telling you what, 
When you experience it, when you see it, when you watch one of those, when you get into one of those, that's the foundation for staying in love. Not simply staying married, staying in love. Love one another. Jesus says, ah, there's a caveat as I've loved you. Got to pay attention to that. Submit to one another. Ah, there's more. I'll submit to one another for Christ's sake. In other words, I want you to learn to love. I want you to begin to submit. And I want you to take your cue from me. Now, let me tell you one of the greatest things in the world about being a pastor especially to be able to stay in the same community all these years like I've been able to. And I've been around here since the late 80s and and just know several generations of of families, and it's just so wonderful. One of the most awesome things somebody in my profession gets to see is a man who grows up in a home that we would consider highly dysfunctional in terms of relationship, a woman who grows up in a home that just, you know, just never seen what we're talking about today, and they become Christians. And this is like, and what we're hearing is Christian Smith's description of what's happened to Christianity. This is moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is not Trinitarian Christianity. This is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And the forgiveness of Christ, and they have a complete mental shift in terms of what it means to love and to receive and to accept love. And they begin to see themselves in a completely different way. And all that stuff I gave you in the list that they didn't get from mom and dad necessarily or from their grandparents and all the things that have been taken from them emotionally, they begin to be healed and they begin to understand that God accepts them and God has compassion for them and God gives them security. And they begin to change on the inside and then they meet. Why does God accept them? They are perpetrators. They have they are guilty of sinning against God by breaking his commandments. Care to give us a little bit of information about the gospel here, Andy? God has compassion for them and God gives them security and they begin to change on the inside and then they meet. And they come together with all this junk in their background, but with a completely different way of viewing relationships than the previous generations, and they get married. And their marriage in no way reflects the baggage that you would expect to see in that marriage. And you say, wow, how did that happen? The odds are you wouldn't last three years, much less 10 or 15 or 20 years. The odds are with everything in your background, what you saw modeled, what was taken away from you emotionally, what culture says, the odds of your marriage surviving are just almost zero. And you scratch below the surface and they say, you know what it is? is that we've learned to love each other, but not the way we've seen love modeled. We've learned to love each other the way that we understand that God through Christ loves us. And even... Okay, you need to explain that. What do you mean the way God through Christ loves us? What does that mean? This is where you should be spending a lot of time in a lot of passages talking about how God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not holding men's trespasses against them, or that Christ was crucified for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, or that he was pierced for our transgressions, or if God kept a record of wrongs, nobody could stand, but with him there is forgiveness, therefore he is feared. This is where you want to spend a lot of time and make this your major point, Pastor, but here it's a passing point because it's not important. 
because you want to solve the Juno dilemma, but the Bible doesn't necessarily solve the Juno dilemma. The Juno dilemma is solved as a fruit of the gospel. But the gospel is the center. The gospel is the aim. The gospel is the thing we abide in. The gospel is the thing that we meditate on. And it's the gospel that brings us to worship Christ, to die to self, and to live for God and to love others in forgiveness and mercy. But the gospel isn't really being preached here. It keeps being somewhat kind of footnoted. But, I mean, there's no reference that I can go to to kind of catch the footnote to see what it says. And even though the odds were against us, and the odds are against us, we're taking our cue from our Heavenly Father in Heaven who illustrated love in the most amazing way when He gave His Son to die and to be our Savior. That in learning to submit to one another, we take our submission cues from our Savior who submitted to us when He gave up His life on our behalf. And we're not just married, and we're not just together. We are genuinely in love. Is it possible for two people to fall in love and stay in love forever? Absolutely. But it doesn't happen because you fell in love in a big, powerful way at the early part of the relationship. You stay in love by making love a verb, by loving one another, and taking your cue for loving one another from the one who loves you the most. You fall in love and who you choose is important, but you stay in love when you learn to mutually submit to one another. When you every single day, not because of a big emotional thing that happened early in the relationship, but every single day you decide, every single day you decide, and every single day he or she decides, you know what? Today she's first, today he's first, today she's first, today he's first. Today they're the priority, today they're the priority, today they're the priority, every single day. And when you do, that thing that's so wonderful about meeting and falling in love. But what about when you don't? You're guilty of transgressing God's commands. You make it sound like all we got to do is clean up our uh, our acts. Just and no, don't worry, don't worry about the other stuff. Better. I tell Sandra all the time, I would marry you again. I would just marry you faster next time. <laughs> and that's like, hey, that's a good. One. I'm going to use that. It's not, you know. <laughs> You gotta wait a while, you know, but hopefully she's not here. But the, the, the point is, I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, the answer to the question that she asked is yes. It's yes, it's yes, but I'm just telling you, it's not because you chose or picked the right one. It's because once you picked somebody, chose somebody, allowed yourself to fall in love with somebody, you did the right things. And the right thing is you choose every single day to love that person. Love is a verb. You make love a verb. You make love a verb. You make love a verb. And it looks like saying you first, no you first, no you first, no you first, no you first. That is the foundation. And that's a lot different than I need you, baby. And you got what I want, baby. And you got what I need. And I can't live without you. I mean, that's fun. Yes, that's good for songs and, and movies. And you know, you know why most romantic comedies are so short? Because if they went any longer, it'd be another big problem to resolve and it would just go on and on. So they got to hurry up and stop the movie while everything's going well. I mean, you do know that, right? I mean, you're, that's certainly not taking your cues from there, right? Falling in love is a great thing. It's easy. Staying in love is a more, it's more of a challenge. But the answer to the question is yes, you 
can't. Now, here's what we're going to do. Um, next week, we're going to get really specific. What does it mean, mutual submission? What does it mean, love one another? And I want you to be ready for next week's discussion. So on your way out today, you're going to get a card like this. And on one side of the card is the passage of scripture we're going to study next week together. On the back of the card are some questions I would love for you to answer. If you're in a relationship right now, I don't think you should discuss these questions, all right? Otherwise, you may come different services next week instead of crossing the auditorium from each other. I don't know. Or maybe you can manage it, but I'm not suggesting that. But here's what I would like to ask you to do. I know this is kind of a big commitment. I would love it if you would read this every day between now and next week. Just put it where the paper is or put it in your desk drawer at work. I would just love it if your mind could be saturated with what we're going to talk about next week because this passage is rich. This is deep. This is practical. This is challenging. This is awesome stuff. And it's so rich and deep, I kind of hate to start cold with it next week. I would love for you to have read it and read it and read it and read it. And then as you answer these questions to begin to integrate, what would this look like in my relationship? What would this look like in a current and a future relationship? If you're not dating someone right now and you're single, hey, what would this look like and what should this look like in my next relationship? Ladies and gentlemen who are single, this will help you know who to look for. If you're in a relationship, this will help you know how to love that person and experience and express mutual submission. Now, one last thing and we're done. If, if you're here today and, and, and you're not really a church person or the God thing or the Jesus thing, or maybe you're from a different religion or somebody promised you lunch and, and they got you here and you're kind of saying, if I finally go to church with you, if you leave me alone. And I know we can be persistent. We put CDs in your mailbox and we can really bug you. I understand that. So you're finally here and, you, and the whole Bible thing, I don't know about that. Would you, would you please just maybe do me a favor or do yourself a favor? Would you play along this week, even if you're not planning to come back next week? See, if there is no Jesus and Jesus is whatever, you know, and who cares and it wasn't real, then reading this is not going to hurt you. Why didn't you tell me more about Jesus? Hmm? It's at least got the value of whatever else you're going to read in the morning. So I want to challenge you, and here's why, here's why. Because if you have kind of stiff-armed Christianity or stiff-armed God, or you had a bad experience in a local church growing up, I understand all of that. I'm telling you, there is no better passage of Scripture for you to read to understand why it is that some of us so passionately love God and why we're so in love with Jesus Christ. Because in this passage, you get a glimpse into God's love for you and how that love can be translated into your current love relationships. The oh, man. We're, oh, man. Why we're so in love with Jesus Christ. Because in this passage, you get a glimpse into God's love for you and how that love can be translated into your current love relationships. The beginning point for this discussion is make love a verb. It's love one another. The, the angle, the leverage that has is mutual submission. You put the other person first. From this point forward, we're just gonna build on that. But I wanna challenge you to do your homework and come next week with this passage in your head and in your heart. And maybe, even if you don't write down answers, some ideas of how that could begin to look in your life. And when you do, we'll continue our discussion and hopefully we will all be better equipped, not only to fall in love, but to stay in love let's pray together wow um
Yeah, you notice how he handled the text. Strip-mined it for principles that applied to the topic that he chose, took things out of context, engaged in eisegesis, turns Jesus into a love guru, and not only that, a pretty demanding one at that. Um, All law, no gospel. Um, Some vague references to the gospel, kind of, sort of, but in a uh, follow-this-example kind of way. And what's never discussed is the fact that you and I are guilty of transgressing God's holy law. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And as a result of it, we justly deserve God's present and eternal punishment. We're just left in this particular case, just going, Oh, I, I, I felt the same way. Uh, that when Juno asked the question, how come there's nobody who ever stays in love forever? Oh, that just resonated with my heart. And uh, I, I want to know the answer to that. Well, Jesus gives you the answer. you gotta, you got to just make love a verb. Oh, well, there's the solution I was looking for. Yeah, the problem is, is um, okay, um, what about all the times when you haven't made love a verb? God's righteousness, his justice, his holiness. None of these things are even remotely even referred to in such a way that the person hearing it real, uh, even begins to have the slightest idea that they stand condemned before God as a result of breaking his transgressions, uh, transgressing his law, uh, breaking his law, transgressing against him. Just apply this principle and everything will be made right in your relationships and God will go, way to go. Nicely done. Wrong. This creates a false view of Christianity, a false view of Jesus, and does not warn people about what their real problem is. That they are dead in trespasses and sins. And that God is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. People have not been called to repentance in the forgiveness of sins. They've been called to behavior modification. And God doesn't care if you've screwed up. That's no big deal. Just apply the principle moving forward and everything will be all right. It's not the gospel. It's something completely different. It creates a false sense of security and twists and mangles the biblical gospel and doesn't even teach sound biblical theology or doctrine. This isn't how you make disciples. In fact, the person who listens to this sermon and applies it has is farther away from being a disciple of Jesus than before they heard it and applied it. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we truly do depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.